All right, welcome to perhaps the longest episode of this podcast ever, an hour and a half. And I'll tell you why, because Chris Difford has just put out a new book called Some Fantastic Place, My Life In and Out of Squeeze. And uh, it's a very interesting book, and it's really a story of, well, you'll hear it in the interview. I, I won't get too redundant, but uh, I wanted to have I, I want to have him on the show. He was on in November of... 2008, so just about exactly nine years ago, and uh, a lot has changed in those nine years. So it's it's kind of interesting. I did I haven't had a chance to listen to the old interview again, so I haven't heard it in nine years. So there might be some redundancy here, but I don't think so because I tried to go sort of in a different direction. I tried to uh, talk mostly about the book and just about a bunch of random things rather than sort of my usual go through your whole history, uh, uh, sort of highlighting the things that interest me most. So hopefully that's what you'll have in the second half when when you'll hear a rerun of that. But this podcast will start with this brand new interview with Chris Difford. Uh, we'll find out about uh, the book and about what Squeeze is up to since they've got back together. And then when that ends, if you're interested, stick around for the entire 2008 interview. A uh, band called the Crystal Robots are going to be on the show in a couple of weeks. Uh, amazing Matt Lucas will be on the show. He's 82 years old, and he's super excited about being on the show. And uh, Paul Krasick and, Dave, and Mark Newgarden, uh, authors of the book How to Read Nancy, about the, the comic strip Nancy, uh, will be on the program too. Check WFMU.org slash Michael for the full list of upcoming guests and the archives of all the old guests. So here it is, two interviews with Chris Difford in a row. Hope you enjoy them. I'm at Michael S at WFMU.org. If you hate me or love me, let me know. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Chris Difford, welcome to WFMU, and good morning. And uh, you're a writer, so the idea of writing a book makes a lot of sense. You know, sometimes people write books who are professional wrestlers or something, and <laughs> and you expect, you know, but from you, I expected a, a well-written book, and that's what I got. That's very kind. Um, uh, I started writing it in a tour bus three or four years ago, and um, it became um, very habitful, and I really enjoyed putting my words down on paper, telling the story of how I got to where I am today. But um, that was the easy bit. The actual um, letting it go was the toughest bit, of, of course. You're extremely honest, and I think uh, how you get to being who you are today is what this book is about, and uh, it's very moving. And part of that is just you're just shockingly honest, and I'm sure that was... I'm sure that was hard. I mean, it's hard to be honest with yourself. Uh, one of the things that you talk about in the book is journals and diaries. Uh, have you always kept them? And yeah. did you did you go back and kind of look through? Uh, yeah, I did reference some of them. But to be honest, uh, a lot of it just came from from being sort of still and, and looking back. Um, and from a place of reflection, I found it much easier to write than to keep going back and looking at the minor details of where I've been and when I've been somewhere, for instance. Um, so I, I went um, and followed the honesty track rather than the um, 
you know, getting getting all the facts in the right place because they, they didn't seem to uh, bother bother me quite as much. Huh. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the interesting things in the beginning of the book, uh, a gypsy at a fair tells you yeah. that you'll marry several times, have many children, and find happiness in music, among other things. Did that really happen, and how old were you? Um, well, it did really happen. It happened at a place called the Lammas Fair, which is in Northern Ireland. And um, it happened, I guess, when I was maybe 10 years old, I think. Um, it was a very... Um, impressionable age I was with my mother a lot of the time and my mother sort of said if I had my palm read uh, she'd buy me an ice cream and um, so I had my palm read I got the ice cream and then she went in and had her palm read because I never found out what what the gypsy said to her yeah how interesting uh, your older brother you have you have two older brothers who uh, weave in and out of the book and they seem to sort of be the first people sort of along with your mother that were sort of like your DJs they they were the guys who turned you on to music first right what was, what were they listening to well i was lucky really cuz one of my brothers was a bit of a tearaway and he enjoyed Bo Diddley and the Rolling Stones uh the blues you know that sort of thing and then my other brother who was Bit of a do-gooder and a, an intelligent uh, accountant, he um, listened to the Beatles and uh, the more softer kind of pop, if you like, including the Searchers and Jerry and the Pacemakers, that kind of thing. So, so I had the best of both worlds from my brothers, and then from my mother, I had Irish music, but also I had Jim Reeves, and Jim Reeves is somebody who I absolutely adore and would love to do a Jim Reeves album at some stage. It's it's very interesting how people in the UK, especially in Ireland, I think, and love country music in a way uh, that's you know sort of tied to its roots. That that it's you know not in the US. Interesting, yeah. I think um, well, I'm in Dublin as we speak, and and um, you know I look I sort of work with a band called The Stripes, who are from not too far from where I'm sitting, and they. They were brought up on, on on sort of country and music and and rock and roll and blues and country music's very very big here. They have lots of country music fest- festivals in this part of the world, but with no people that you would recognise. It's not <laughs> you know it's it's none of your your normal names. They're local home home bred country singer song songwriters, and there are many of them. One of the the things about the book that not exactly a surprise to me, but it was it was very interesting. Is that how broad your early years, uh, your influence of, of music, and you know just the idea that you were open to so much different uh, kinds of music, and that I believe it still influences you, you know, always. I think it's good to have a, um, a wide palette to draw from, and um, lyrically speaking, I'm drawn to. To mainly people that write great lyrics, so Elvis Costello would be somebody that I would I would listen to a lot, and and just recently Gregory Porter, who's a jazz singer, um, because I'm so stunned by the quality of his lyric writing, um, and yet he only really started his career in his forties, which is an incredible thing. I I never heard of him. Uh, I don't think. Yeah, he's amazing. But as a as a youngster, I mean, like hippie bands and pop bands and Broadway show tunes, and your yeah. your, your catalog was quite deep. You call yourself in the book academically useless. You were not drawn to athletics. You had a stammer, and it's and the book 
sort of through throughout the whole story is you you are showing your own you're you're having a hard time feeling at home in the world sort of and it and the book to me was about how you sort of did the hard work of finding how to just be happy uh and sober in in the everyday life uh and i think music mm. is part of what helped you is that right uh, yeah it's an escape <clears throat> in the way that writing is it's odd because i was attracted to forming a band at a very young age to try and get away from the reality of whatever my life was then it's slightly confused i guess as a young teenager and here I am, 63 years old, and um, just as confused as I was then, you know, but, but, but from a different point of view. Yeah, but I think you've sort of got a handle on how to process things now so that they don't freak you out or drive you into bed or into the bar or whatever. Yeah, um, uh, you know, I've got a handle on, on how to look at life and how to deal with certain issues. I think being in a band is, it's almost like you have to have a degree in psychology to kind of work out your place in a in a group because you meet when you're young kids and you have similar views and similar music that you like and you have you know you have things to aim for that you all want to achieve whether they're playing in Madison Square Garden or having hit success you know and then when you get into your fifties and sixties you discover that you don't know the people that you grew up with. Um, and it's quite a, it's quite challenging for lots of people. And that, you know, if I look at a band like The Who or Led Zeppelin or any of the great bands of our era, they've all suffered that kind of family disease, if you like. But throughout the book, you do, you balance it with these very sweet uh, portraits of almost each band member. You have something wonderful to say about which is which is very sweet and it's very uh, very family like you said there is because there's certainly both sides of the coin and there are these long especially with glenn these long long relationships that ebb and flow and it's uh it's heartbreaking at times but uh mm. yeah but but very family like you said so in the book you sort of go from being a hippie to a skinhead and hanging out with these two very bad guys I mean, yeah. what what were you what were you angry? You know, I mean, what is? Can you put your finger on why why make that change and why you didn't end up like they did with with bad endings? Um, well, I lived in a neighborhood where I had no opportunity to be anything other than with them because they were um, they were bigger than me, a bit older than me, certainly not wiser, but they were just as confused as I was, and they. Uh, were rebels, really, and it seemed like if I didn't join in, I'd be left behind in in the dust. So I joined in with, with being in a gang, and it was violent at times. It was very drug-orientated at times. And, it, and all the while this was going on, I didn't really feel at home. It didn't feel like my natural habitat. My natural habitat was to write poems and to disappear into my imagination and I met some of those people that I grew up with on on that on the, in those gangs, and they always remember me as a as a young lad who used to write poems while they were beating people up, and they thought <laughs> it was a very confusing picture that I was painting. Yeah, well, I mean, not every teenager, especially boys, are writing poems. I mean, what what called you mm -hmm. to do that? How did you even know you could do that? 
I don't know. It's just a God-given thing, I guess. It was a way of it was a way of finding safety, um, a way of being on my own but happy with my my being. Um, so it was it was like writing with my cave. You know, I'd go into my cave and I'd write, and I'd be very happy in there. And then someone would knock on the door, and then I'd come out. And but I'd always go back to the cave, and the cave is is, is a wonderful place. Like I said, you my hat is off to you for just your honesty because, you, you, like you said, you, there was some violence and some regrettable uh, behavior mm. during that time. And uh, I guess your kids are grown now mostly. But uh, were you worried that, like, just putting it all out there was people were going to judge you? No, not really, because if I hadn't written an honest book, I probably wouldn't have written one because it had to be honest because that's the way I am, I guess. Um I was nervous when the book came out because I wanted my children to be happy with it and my close friends. And by and large, I think everybody has um, taken the book on for what it is. And I haven't had any particularly bad feedback. So I feel I feel very lucky, lucky I guess. No lawsuits uh, coming your way? Not yet. Um, my ex-wife lives in upstate New York and... I'm hoping to see her in a couple of weeks' time, so I'll find out what she thought of it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, she's a, she's featured quite prominently. Um, where did you learn guitar? I think that's one thing that isn't mentioned in the book. Who put a guitar in your hands, and uh, when? Um, I was in my, I was seven, sixteen years old, or fifteen, sixteen years old when I first played a guitar. A friend who lived a couple of doors down and had a guitar, and he borrowed it to me, and. Um, you know, I was curious as to how how it worked. You know, by putting, I got a chord book and I learned shapes. So if I had put my fingers in different shapes, then it would make a different sound. But I didn't really know what the what the chords were or what the music meant or how it could build. And in actual fact, as a dyslexic person, I found it easy to learn the chords, but not to know the music. If that makes any sense. And, and that's always been the, the uh, case. And, you know, I'm out on tour with Squeeze now, and I'm just as dyslexic as I was when I was 16 years old. So. <laughs> and some of those songs have a lot of chords in them. Oh, my God. I do, but they're beautiful. And, um, you know, I was talking to um, our drummer, Simon, this morning, and they were saying, you know, it, it's incredible how many chords Glenn gets into a song. <laughs> Yeah, when you're listening to it, you don't really realize that it's kind of, it sounds simple, but actually on paper, it's like um, flies flies have landed. Yeah, well, it's amazing that, I mean, he clearly has an ear to, I guess it's it's a little bit like Paul McCartney's that the melody, the way the melody works against the chords is very special, and those subtleties of those chords really set the melodies off so well, and uh, so well mm. that you don't notice them, like like you said, yeah. Yeah, it's an incredibly uh, genius way of working, and uh, you know he's uh, he's standalone in uh, in that way, I guess. 
Yes, he's he's off the charts. Yes. So uh, let me remind everybody, Chris Difford is our guest, and ChrisDifford.com is the website. And if you want to get yourself a copy of Some Fantastic Place, My Life, In and Out of Squeeze, you can get one there. And, in fact, you can get a signed copy there as well. So we just brought up Glenn. So you met him in 1973, and I think we told this story on, when you were on the show last time that uh, it's a famous story that uh, you put up an advertisement saying that you had an imminent uh, tour and uh, record uh, you know, contract, and you were looking for a guitarist. And of course, you had none of those things, but you did meet Glenn. And in the first year, I think you say in the book that you wrote 137 songs. Did you have any idea that that is not a normal amount of songs to write? No, I didn't. You know, I think we were just trying to compete with each other and try and work as hard as possible to, to get a record together. And uh, we were always trying to impress each other, I guess. And that's why we wrote so many songs. But I have to point out, most of those songs weren't very good. Um, <laughs> but they were just the sort of they were just they were just a way of us getting to know each other. So, in, if you were putting it in, into romantic terms, it was kind of like we were we were heavy petting. <laughs> interesting. And the real thing came later. That's very interesting. So, in, it's 1976, and you're 22, and it's a fantastic time in the UK. I think, especially because hippies are still a thing and punk is coming in and glam is sort of a thing and disco is coming in and all of this is in the air Mm. and and the queen and you know just everything is is going crazy could you feel that happening well yeah i guess so i mean i've definitely felt punk coming up the street i mean it was extraordinary the energy that was on radio in the uk at that time was enormous and you know being in a band uh, you couldn't help but be influenced by this, this sort of punky aggression. Um, and because I'd already appreciated bands like the MC5 and the Stooges, I kind of, I kind of already had done my homework and uh, the sort of principles of that kind of music and music still stood very strongly for me in American roots rather than British roots. I found British punk not as exciting as, as American punk for some reason. Um, and then when we came to tour in America, of course, you know, to hang out with the Ramones and people like that, I mean, that really was the proper stuff, you know, for me. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I agree with you, yes. Uh, the Ramones are one of the greatest bands that ever lived and uh, just, they don't quite get their due, uh, but it, yeah, they're amazing. Uh, so John Pr- Kale produces your first record, and nobody sort of is is extremely happy with it, although there are two number two hits on that album, and your life kind of changes like magic, right? Yeah, we um, <clears throat> went into record with the legendary John Kale, who I absolutely love and adore, and probably didn't say enough about in the book, but he's a real genius, and um, you know, we have it suddenly, we're, we're famous in a way, we've got songs on the radio, songs on television. You know, we're coming to America for the first time. and You know, we're starting to flower as a young band. We're starting to sense that what we're doing is making sense. And uh, there's nothing better than that feeling. I mean, were your parents beside themselves? My parents were missed. They didn't understand, you know, what being in a rock and roll band meant. They kind of, you know, they had very basic lives in, in some respects, and they, they were very worried for me. They thought, you know, I end up a drug addict and an alcoholic, and they were right. You know, they were right <laughs> to think that. And it's like so many times the story is told that parents are not into what their children do, and then, then their children succeed almost willfully against 
what they're being told. Well, how did that influence the way you encouraged your own kids? Well, I always encourage my children to do whatever they want to do, um, as long as they don't do anything in the music business. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I got an email from my daughter today. She's going to do some work at a cookery school, and I'm saying to her, that's exactly what you should be doing. You know, that's everybody needs to eat. You're great with your imagination and the way that you cook. You've got to do that, you know. So, you know, you've got to inspire children to do what they do. I would never say, you know, I think that's daft, you know. Hmm. Uh, let's talk about songwriting for a minute. Uh, I mean, so many of your songs we're so familiar with and in a way that where the lyrics are so i you know i can't think of too many people like squeeze where when i hearing the song the lyrics are just kind of going in my head uh and some of them there's you know they're like short stories i'm sure that's been said a million times but there's the amount of lyrics per song is 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 dense uh so how long to to write you know when you're writing these pieces, how uh, just to write a song, what is sort of the average time it takes you to write a full lyric? If it's good, less than five minutes. <laughs> if it's if it's a lyric that is intrinsically flawed, then it can take weeks, and then I lose my admiration for what I, for, for that particular lyric. So, on our new album, for instance, there's a couple of lyrics that just fell out of the air. I don't, you know, I don't go searching for lyrics. They come to me, and I'm very lucky in that respect. I, I, I think if you go searching for what you do, you end up finding the wrong thing. Uh, that's fascinating. So, are you? So you? So you write when it comes to you, and what percent of your pieces get turned into a song eventually? Well, it depends who I'm working with. With Glenn, um, you know, I can give him thirty or forty lyrics, and maybe only five or six of those will come back as completed songs. Um, and then, you know, when I'm working with other people on individual projects, I tend to just write one song at a time because you're just you're writing to that person's voice. So you're like a tailor. You're making a suit to fit that person. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to work in the theater where I could expand my lyrical talents, hopefully, by... Uh, um, by taking my stories down different avenues. Do you go see uh, current shows as they open and stuff? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, you know, I went to see Girl from the North Country just recently, which is um, uh, a theatre in London called The Old Vic, and it's um, it's a play written around the songs of Bob Dylan. Um, but interestingly, it takes you quite a while to realise that the songs are play any important role in the show itself. It's not like you're getting the songs rammed down your throat, that you're getting a verse and a chorus of, of, a, of a song to weave the thread of the storyline. And I think that's a really interesting and fascinating way to work. Yeah. Uh, just curious, have you seen a show called Something Rotten? Not yet, no. Uh, it's good. It takes place in Shakespeare time, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's just the best thing I've seen on Broadway in, in, long, in, in forever, perhaps. The, the best contemporary uh, uh, musical. Loved it. If it comes I there, go see it. Yeah. That's great. Mm -hmm. uh, so do you read a lot of books? Are you a, a person who, who has read, and what are your favorite books or authors? No, I, ha I haven't read, actually. Um, I'm not a great reader. I don't have – I mean, when I was reading my own book, it was – to find the discipline to read my own book, that was hard <laughs> enough. <laughs> um, to read other people's is even harder. Um, 
you know, I've read a lot of therapy books because I've studied, but, you know, as far as, you know, your Stephen King's and those kind of things, I haven't really read any of those things. So after the the first record, the band becomes extremely busy. I mean, extremely busy. And this is sort of the central theme of the book. You're sort of your discomfort, your insecurity, your hard time communicating your thoughts, your feelings, your ideas, and how to balance your family and and this music. And it's, and like I said, very fascinating. And I think one reason I was drawn to it, and I think one reason people will be drawn to it, is because everybody can relate to that story of feeling like you're trying to overcome your insecurities. Yeah, it's, um, I still do. It's, it's an incredible um, feeling of fragility to have that. Um, and it, 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 it can follow you around for your entire life. But music and writing for me are my, um, you know, they're, they're my sort of, that's my cave, as I said before. It's the place where I go where I can just be me and uh, shut the door and, and, and just find that inner space. Um, but you have to have people around you who respect that, and that's really difficult to find. You, you toured in the USA quite a bit, and... Are you? I mean, I can't tell. Are you? Are you a bigger deal in the USA or in the UK? Well, I think it's evened out over the years. I think we were bigger in America for a while, simply because we were playing stadiums and that kind of thing. But now, I think we've we've balanced up the books. We're, we can play theatres in London that are just about the same size as the ones in New York. So, you know, I think the passion for Squeeze is still there amongst our fans. And they'll come and see us play, and um, we'll give them a really good show. Um, but not in the way that we used to. So I don't think we have any sort of yearning to go back to the the larger gigs. I think then, you know, those days have gone. I think you've been a band for 45 years or so, or, or, or close to that. Uh, and one of the amazing things is that you can come out and do a show, and every song can be a hit, sort of. You know what I mean? It's just because there's so many uh, records and, and songs uh, at, at this time. Yeah. One of the, in the book, you talk about using songs almost as, a, as your only way to communicate with Glenn, who was your partner for, you know, 25 years at that time. I mean, it sounds almost like a prison that you were in. Yeah, it was a prison of quite, uh, you know, it was quite a dark time for me in those days. I didn't know how to communicate particularly, um, or particularly well. Um, so song, you know, writing songs with Glenn, we would be able to um, communicate through what we were writing, writing, um, and some people say that we still do that. Um, I, I, I see that less so now than in the past. Mm. Um, I think we have an understanding now that we're we're much older. That um, there are very little limited similarities between the two of us if we've, as we've grown into older men. But if there are any things that bind us together, it's our songs um, and our passion for those songs. So. It's kind of like we've been divorced several times, but we're still living in the same house. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it's a fascinating relationship because you do have the creative element and the, I mean, just just by the 
being the proximity, especially in the early days where you're you're in a van, you know, ten feet from less than ten feet from somebody, you're in a motel room, you're in a restaurant, you're on stage, mm-hmm. you're never more than a few feet from this guy for months at a time, and it's uh, mm-hmm. and you're trying to balance this creative thing, yeah, uh, and it kind of eventually really drove you to to almost literally crack, which eventually drove you to sobriety, which seems like, uh, uh, and the book really yeah. does tell the story of how, literally how you did it. Oh, that's very kind of you. Well, that was the, that was the arc of the book for me. And I'm glad you pointed that out. It is about that journey because that's the journey of my life more than being in a band in some ways. And, um, you know, it takes an awful lot of sobriety to understand what you're doing in a band <laughs> because being in a being in a band can be the most the most the biggest sacrifice you could ever make but it's a sacrifice you don't make uh, on your own it's a sacrifice you have to make jointly but everybody's got their individual needs so it's it's really not ever fairly balanced whoever speaks the loudest kind of gets the most i guess um because i I, I, for one reason or another, couldn't find my voice to speak louder when I was young, younger. A lot of decisions and a lot of things that happened happened without me really speaking my mind. Um, time's too short for that now. You know, there are less years in the future than there has been in the past. So I have to really go with what I feel and, and, and live with what I've learned. And the most important thing there is the line of sobriety that I've managed to capture and and be supported by people of a like mind who I hang out with. It's funny because in a way I was reading the book and I felt naive in a way because I was reading and I and I guess you know you when you you hear the songs and you live with the songs from as a fan for years and years and you imagine that the only way these could have been created was by two best friends you know i mean that is kind of in my mind the myth you know but it because listening to the songs that seems it seems like you're sharing one world you know and so it is sobering mm. to to find that that's not the case well it's odd you say that but we're sort of deep down with best friends i guess because we share we share we share this lifetime together and that's very odd in itself that we've come together um for 45 years to write 14 albums to tour hundreds of times and you know live in a sort of Groundhog Day environment of getting up and going to work and <clears throat> reading the weather you know it's kind of that's what we that's what we uh, do I think the thing about our relationship to me is that there is a deep-rooted love there at least there is from my point of view even when we're not getting on I have a huge amount of respect for Glenn he he works incredibly hard for for the songs and for the albums. He produces them extraordinarily well and cares. I mean, he cares much more than I do um, and has one single vision, which is Squeeze, which is what I don't. I have a, a wider vision of different things that I do, like writing the book and you know doing my own shows, being you know being in a different world. But Squeeze is the important thing there, I think. Just we're talking about sobriety for a moment. I I was surprised that Elton John came up in the book so much. He was sort of a key to helping you get sober, stay sober, and just be a friend and sort of became not a mentor, but almost a mentor to you. Yeah, very much so. He's you know he's somebody who I can 
call at any time or email and he'll respond instantly almost, which is incredible when you think about how busy he is. Um, for instance, he's in Australia today and if I sent him an email saying I was feeling this or I was feeling that, he would respond within an hour really and that's incredible. And, he'll, and he buys 20 copies of each of your CDs as they come out and, and is just an enthusiastic yeah. fan. You know, it's just very sweet. It is sweet. Well, he's a sweet man. He's a lovely, lovely man. And he's not just giving to me, he's giving to the world. I mean, the fact that he still tours and he's 71 and, you know, he's a real inspiration for me. I, you know, I'm 63 and I'm thinking I want to throw in the towel. I've had enough. And, and I see him, 71, still going strong, still touring the world. Mind you, he has a private jet, and I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, can you email him and ask him to come on my radio show? Uh, and, and yeah, I sure will. We'll hear from him in, within an hour. Um, so at a certain point, uh, you just can't take it anymore, and there's no more squeeze in your life for a f- eight or nine years, I think. And it is, in a, again, a very interesting time, and you do not just sit in your house and do nothing. You work with Brian Ferry, and that piece was uh, excerpted. I think a lot of people got to read that. Uh, and you work with, as you said, The Stripes, who I love. I mean, the first second I heard that band, I just thought, fantastic. Uh, they're little boys, or at least they were when when they started. Uh, and then eventually, and you made these, you started making solo albums, and uh, all of a sudden you're the lead singer. Uh, what did it teach you mm. to all of a sudden have to be the lead singer for an entire uh, concert? Well, to come to the microphone, it took me um, quite a lot of um, hard work to sort of enjoy who I was. And, and then suddenly the realization that all those three songs were actually belonging to me as well as Glenn. And I could sing them, but in a different key. Um, and I enjoyed my own shows very, very much. I loved the liberation of going on stage and, and performing my version of our songs. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it was a. It, it took five or six years to find my feet, to come to the microphone, you know, and to be that guy. And uh, yeah, I, res- I respect that. I respect that move. Yeah. Uh, so you did reunite and that sort of chapter is still unfolding i mean uh there's been one new record and there's one that's just about to come out and what is the name of the the new new record yeah the new album is called the knowledge and that comes out in a few weeks time and um we have a new record label it's like we have a new record label every time we have a record out it seems but that's the way it is and they seem to be quite enthusiastic um we're coming to america in four weeks time to do some more shows um, so, yeah, it's, you know, there we are. We're reading the weather again. <laughs> I saw you you did a a tour just, uh, you and Glenn, uh, the At Odds Couple tour a year or so ago. Yeah. And I saw that, and there was an interesting part where you took questions from the audience. Uh, you're both wearing your bathrobes and stuff during the beginning of the show. And uh, I was just curious, is, did anything come out of that question and answer period that was a surprise or that was particularly interesting? Actually, not really. I think people were a bit taken back that they were going to be drawn into the fray. So um, questions were kind of a little bit commonplace in most places, I guess. Mm. Um, But they were were generally funny, and it kept the flow of the show going. And I have to say, it was my favorite part of the show. Well, it's always nice to have people just pour love at you. You know, that's never... 
that doesn't get old. I I would I would assume. One okay. So, so our radio station is in Jersey City, right across the the Hudson River from Manhattan. So New York City is our uh, and Northern New Jersey is our listening area. And I I always got the feeling that Squeeze and I grew up grew up here that Squeeze. This is perhaps the the most concentrated Squeeze fan area on earth, perhaps because commercial radio in New York. <laughs> you know, I mean, you guys were just a you're a huge band, like you said, Madison Square Garden, where I saw you. You know, and many years ago, Nassau Coliseum, where I saw you many years ago. I mean, those are huge venues. Mm. Why? I mean, is it just that commercial radio was was playing you? Well, yeah, that and the fact that we worked really hard to get there, but. <clears throat> you know, whenever I come to that part of America, to New York, it feels like home. Uh, we spent so much time there. In fact, I have family there. Um, two of my kids live in New York. And, um, yeah, it just feels like home. And, um, you know, we'll be there in four or five weeks' time. And the shows are doing really well. We're playing at the Beacon in New York and the Camp Basie Theatre in New Jersey. And, yeah, it's, it, you know, I'm so proud of what we've done as a band in America. It was a lot of work, and it's now sort of established itself, and I'm very, very proud of that. Yeah. It is an amazing legacy. I mean, just to to, to be... There are squeeze songs on the radio every day, you know, and that's you've sort of joined, you know, all, all the Beatles and just all those bands who are just part of the the wallpaper, you know, of of the world, which is mm. yeah, it's amazing. Um, do you have favorite squeeze songs of all time? Just two or three that for you know that we might be surprised are your favorites. Um, well, they change all the time, but um, "Woman's World" from the Side Story album is a was a big song for me lyrically. I really enjoyed the, the word play on that. Um, a song called Letting Go on the play album is one of the most emotive pieces of music Glenn's ever written. And I don't think I can listen to it without crying. It's one of the toughest songs we've ever written. You know, so those those are just two weird ones. Um, but then if you go right back to the very beginning, uh, we had an EP um, that came out before our first album. And, uh, you know, when I listened to that, which I did the other day, and I hear these young men just being so energetic and full of life, but the whole rest of their lives just mapped out for them. I just think, wow, that's an amazing sound. <laughs> yeah, the packet of three. Yes, it's, 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 it is quite an, a lot of energy bursts out of that. I noticed that, that on your website, chrisdifford.com, you're also selling this uh, CD of pre-squeeze demo recordings that a friend of yours just recorded, uh, I guess, in his house on his reel-to-reel and recently presented you with the tapes. I haven't uh, heard these yet. What do they sound like? Well, I was shocked to, to, to discover how good they sounded, and I sound like a young man trying to impress David Bowie and sort of... <laughs> I'm, lyri I'm lyrically leaning in every direction that David Bowie would have been leaning in at that, at that time in 1972. Um, they're very fanciful lyrically, most of them. But there are two or three on there that are really powerful. And, uh, and um, when I heard them, um, I sort of thought, wow, I can't believe that that young lad was that focused on what he wanted to do. He didn't want to do anything else. He just wanted to write songs. Yeah. You know, and that young that young lad still exists, but he's just not um, he's just not around quite as much. Hmm. That's fascinating. Well, uh, you've been sober for twenty five years, and congratulations! I think everyone listening has a friend or a family member, you know, in that in some part of that situation, and uh, 
it's hard and uh so congratulations for that. It's just uh, it's very, thank you. That's very the, kind. The book is inspiring uh, along that lines. Oh, thank you for sure. Uh, you've got a blog on your um, on your website that I recommend often when you're on tour. You uh, again, sometimes brutally, honestly, just about how you're feeling, how the show went, things like that, and uh, it's quite interesting. And uh, I wanted to end up with the song "Some Fantastic Place" for which the book is uh, named. Yeah. And uh, this wonderful woman, Maxine, who is the, the was the girlfriend of, of Glenn when when he first showed up to answer your ad, and it's just it is a, yeah. a an absolutely lovely song. And actually, I have both versions here. There's a, you you re-recorded the song for a Spot the Difference a few years ago, and it's one of the few songs on that record which you did actually change up a little bit. Do you have a one of the that you prefer one of the versions? I prefer the uh, the original version myself, but. I mean, I think it's one of the most powerful songs we've ever written um, because when she passed away, she inspired us both to remember her in song, which is what she would have wanted. But she turned my life on its head. And um, uh, in many ways, the you know, the three months before she passed away, you know, she said she said to me in her garden, you know, that I should think about co-writing with other people, that I should stop drinking, that I should find a good relationship. You know, all of those things. And of course, at the time, I, I questioned what she was talking about, but because she was going into another world, I kind of respected that she that she had stronger feelings than than I did. Um, and God, God bless her. She was absolutely right on on every everything. And I, I you know, that's that song says everything to me. Yeah, it is. It is a very, very special song. And like I said, it's another one of these. It just reads. The lyrics just are. You know they flow perfectly. There's 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 a short story quality to them, and there's a, a definite you know a definite point of view to them, and just the the melody and just you know the whole the whole thing. And it's a song that always makes me emo- emotional. And it's interesting because you said that about uh, Maxine, and it's almost like uh, a bookend of the um, of the the fortune teller. You know this the one lady told your future, yeah. and then Maxine told you it again. Yeah. Yeah, that's wow. Cool. God, I haven't seen that. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. I just that's really in. fascinating. It really is, yeah. Uh, Chris Difford is here, mm. one of my all-time favorite bands, Squeeze, and they're coming to the area, and the CD and the book are out, and you can get them at com and read the blog and everything. It's called Some, Fasta- Some Fantastic Place, My Life In and Out of Squeeze. Chris, it's fascinating, and just thanks for the music, and thanks for taking Thank time for us this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. She gave to me a tenderness, her friendship and her love. I see her face from time to time, there in the sky above. We grew up learning as we went, what a voyage our lives could be. It took us through a wilderness, into the calmest sea. A smile could lift me from the pain I often found within She said some things I won't forget She made a few bells ring So simple her humility Her beauty found in grace 
She showed me how to raise a smile out of a bed of bloom. And in her garden sanctuary, a life began to bloom. She visualized the world ahead and planned how it would be. She left behind the strongest love. Yeah, there's Chris Difford from his uh, record, The Last Temptation of Chris, and joining us on the telephone. Chris, welcome to WFMU. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. How are you? I'm fantastic. Uh, I want to start off with something completely irrelevant. Uh, The election has just happened here, and it's sort of giant news, like life-changing news. Is there any sense of that where you are? Um, I would say absolutely. And um, when... I mean, we all stayed up to watch it, and uh, people were actually, you know, running to the TV every now and again to get an update of what was happening. And um, I think it's a real turning turning point. And when I look at 
our own government here in this country, I just see how sort of old-fashioned they look compared to what you now have in, in the United States. Mm, that's, yeah, well, let's hope it works out. I guess we'll all sort of have to stay tuned and yeah. see. But it is very exciting in any case. Uh, oh, you've just had a birthday, I believe. Uh, yes, I did indeed. So, yeah. Happy birthday. Where were you born? I was born in Greenwich in London, which um, used to be like uh, the, the naval dock dockyards in Henry VIII's time were all, all, all along there. And is it a rough place to grow up? Was was your childhood? Yeah, it was pretty much, yeah. I mean, it's 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 changed a lot now, you know, like old neighborhoods in pretty much every city, you know, they were they were very dangerous places to be once upon a time, and now they're sort of... Uh, for the sort of semi semi retired wealthy folk. Yeah, the 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 yuppies move in, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was there music in your house? Did your folks listen to the radio? Was your your parents playing instruments? What was your exposure as a kid? Well, um, actually, most of the music came from my two older brothers. One of them was a Rolling Stones fan, and the other one was a Beatles fan. Mm. So, um, you know, I used to get daily doses of the Beatles, daily doses <laughs> of the Rolling Stones and Buddy, Buddy Holly and that sort of thing. Yeah, having I, older brothers really is a, is a fantastic uh, tool for, for musicians. It certainly is, yeah. And, uh, and my mother brought a lot of Irish music into the house because obviously she was from our island. And um, so, you know, we had all of, all of that sort of stuff, folk music too. Yeah, I mean, you were, I want to know, 10 years old when Beatlemania was going crazy. It sort of seems to be the perfect age to sort of think of these guys as these bigger-than-life characters. Well, they were bigger-than-life characters for a little boy in short short trousers, <laughs> trousers you know. And it, you know, the Beatles were absolutely huge. And, you know, I was just listening to the radio here in the UK, and they were playing a Beatles song. I was just thinking, nothing sounds as fresh as that now. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's the best. It's the, the, the high point of pop music period uh when did you first get a guitar or uh, or think you know maybe i can play music uh well i didn't really think about that until i was at least 15 or 16 years old um most of the time i just been as a uh, i just been writing ly- lyrics so i had a school band which i was in and it sounded pretty rough but um but it was a it was a beginning you know and it was there were original songs even at that point yeah, they were original songs. I, I couldn't work out how to do covers, so I just <laughs> had to write my own songs. But it was, having said that, it was very much in the frame of the Vel- Velvet Underground or the Grateful Grateful Dead. It's very interesting you say that, because the first band I was ever in in high school, we could not figure out how to play Pulling Muscles from Michelle, and so we started to write our own songs. It's the exact same thing, skipped. Yeah. yeah uh, just crazy. Uh, so... When did you think maybe this will be the way I earn my living? When was the first time you thought I will I will try that? Um, from the minute it began, uh, I read read an interview with Pete Townsend in what was a music paper in those days called The Melody Maker, and he was talking about how fantastic it was to be in a group, and you know the sort of comings and goings of being in a group, and the excesses of being in a group. And I just thought, well, that's for me. That's exactly <laughs> what I want to. Be- to uh, do in life and you know I like um, like Obama in a way I kind of felt you know that anything is possible possible and I just stuck stuck at it met the right people had a bit of luck and you know that was it huh. I, I want to let you know I've spent a great 
uh, p- portion of this week rereading a book called Song by Song, which yeah. uh, Chris Difford yourself and Glenn Tilbrook with a guy named Jim Drury. And basically, it's the history of Squeeze and with, with where you discuss every single song. And, and some of the discussion, mm-hmm. most of the discussion is about the, the creating, the crafting of the song and the recording. But there's also an incredible amount of autobiographical information, and it's painfully honest about every topic. Yeah, well, I think it's good to be honest. You know, there, there there's absolutely good reason to be honest because it keeps it real. And, um, you know, when I think back to some of the things that we have done in the past, it's no different from any other person growing up, really. It's just that we were magnified because we were in a, in a band. Um, you know, and we had a lot of luck along the, the way. But we did a lot of hard work, too. I mean, we came to America and stuck at it for year on 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 year until we completed about thirty or forty American American <laughs> tours. Yeah, that it's an amazing. Well, it's a really amazing book, and I and I urge folks interested in in your music to get it. Again, it's called Song by Song. Uh, you were about age eighteen. You placed an ad, uh, I think, in the in a, in a shop window saying that you were uh, a musician with a record deal and an eminent tour, which both I I, I guess were. Not even exaggerations, just lies. And the person, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was up there, and no one answered it except for fifteen-year-old Glenn Tilbrook, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, they, it was fortuitous, and uh, Glenn almost fell out of the sky like an angel. In fact, he looked like an angel in those days. He had long flowing hair, silk, you know, like a silk pink silk uh, shirt, and I mean, he just looked looked like he'd come out of heaven. <laughs> and it's a very interesting story. You talk about your teenage years, and you talk about uh, doing lots of drugs and hanging out with these crazy, tough, skinhead people, and then how you sort of turned into a hippie one day. Yeah, it was um, it was really one of the best moves I'd ever made. You know, one one minute I was going around in a gang of in a gang of boys. You know, I've always been in a gang. Being in a band is like <laughs> being in a gang too. Yeah. And I went from being in a gang of boys to a gang of, you know, pot-smoking hippies, really, <laughs> and it was great fun. Yeah. Uh, so you and Glenn clicked almost right away and started to write songs right away. Yes, we did. Um, within about a month, I think, we started writing songs. And I guess we'd written about 100 songs before we got a record deal, maybe 150 songs. <laughs> and um, and uh, John Cale came along to produce the first album, and rejected all of all of the songs that we've written, and we had to start from scratch. And when I look back at those early demos, I'm really pleased that that happened. Really? So they were just uh, just work that you sort of had to get out of the way. No, they were they were growth. It was growth, really, and uh, they were fantastic songs. But it wasn't. You know, I'm glad that our first album was kind of like uh, the way that it was. That we were. We were sort of pushed through different hoops to come up with bizarre ideas that John sort of pushed us towards. Yeah, I know you're a huge uh, Velvet Underground fan, and mm. and so when John Cale appeared on the scene, I assume you thought that would be fantastic for the band. Oh, yeah, it was like being in Dreamland. It was wonderful. Except it turns out there's lots of stories that he was uh, drunk and unreasonable, sort of. And, and made a record that didn't sound like how how good a band you were or how you sounded. Is that accurate? Well, it was difficult working with him, but it was an experience that I'm glad that we had, and I'm sure it's a gl- an experience I'm glad that he had too. Mm. So 
um, you know, we all go through life-changing developments in our in our world, and uh, both us and John have gone through many of those things. Yeah, well, it's interesting that the the two songs that had that were the biggest hits were the songs on that record that John didn't work on. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't well, and he he couldn't come into work, so we just recorded some songs without him, and they became the first couple of hits. Yeah, Include- so it was a bit of a bit. It was a bit of a shame for old John, but uh, great for us. Yeah, Take Me, I'm Yours, one of those songs. It was your first, your biggest real hit. I think it was number 19 in the UK. Got you on Top of the Pops, I believe. Yeah, which sadly we don't have anymore. Top of the Pops is a thing of the past. Yeah, just just cancelled. Uh, it's a pretty, I mean, you wrote hundreds of songs in that time, but still, to go from the, the date you, you, you placed that ad to being on Top of the Pops, it's only about three years or so. It's kind of a giant step forward. Well, it's, these, if, you, but com, if you compare it to what happens these days, it's actually a long, long time. I mean, most <laughs> artists get signed pretty quickly these, these days, and, but they also get dropped pretty quickly. Um, times have changed. You know, when we first signed, we were on what was called a development deal, which you cannot get now um, because record companies don't have the funds to do that. So we were, we were on a development deal. Our first album didn't hit. Gold, so the second album did, and you know the record company just stuck with us. Yeah, it is. A, it it was a an interesting time because I I look at this in the UK and I can't sort of figure out 1973. The the music on the charts is so different from 1977, and what's happening, uh, you know, with the Sex Pistols and the Ramones, and sort of where what happened to pub rock and. Mm. what they called new wave i mean it's just such a giant change from being coming a hippie to being a a new wave you know stamped guy did you sort of feel that in the air was it like this music has got to change this is just too old-fashioned what's happening um well i guess so we were supporting bands that were playing like 20 minute songs and doing (laughs) drum solos and stuff and and then along came the punk era, and we kind of sh- we jumped on on board ship and and kind of enjoyed the wave. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember coming to America on our first tour and playing in Dallas, and uh, people in Dallas, you know, thought we we were punks, and they put chicken wire up in front of the stage so that the people, you know, could could throw bottles without them harming us. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how threatened people felt by. By that, by people's hairdos, really, you know, it's just amazing when you see the anger in people's faces on those documentaries about the Sex Pistols. I mean, they're just angry that the Sex Pistols would dare come to their town and look the way they look. Yeah, yeah and to, today, you know, music is very safe. There's no, you know, there's very little anger when it comes to music. I mean, it's very difficult to piss your parents off these these days because. You know that most parents and children kind of the arc between the two musical groups is pretty similar. Mm. So uh, that revolution that you know you and I may have gone through at some point in our lives just doesn't happen now. Well, it's interesting because you know 1970. You know the music 30 years before mm. that is so different from the music. 30 years after that, it's, you know, in some cases very similar. I think one of the problems or one of the the differences now is that uh, people's private lives, entertainers' private lives sort of provide the the drama, not the music anymore. Well, that's very, very true, but I also believe that things go in cycles, and I believe that with a new president in the United States, music will probably change shift too, because it will move from possibly being safe to possibly being a little bit more 
exciting as people become a little bolder with their lives. And, you know, the great thing about America to me is it's a can-do place, you know, and, you know, you're taught to to try your best and and uh, and, and and just go go for gold the whole time, whereas in this country it's, that's not quite the, uh, the sort of pattern of, of life. And in fact, you know, America seems like a very appealing place to live at at this present time, even though there's, a, there's an economic disaster going on. Well, you've got pounds to bring over, so you'll do quite well if you come over here. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember being in the UK and someone explaining to me that because of the monarchy, there was this sort of feeling that there was only so far you could go. There was a certain level you could never, ever achieve. And in America, that, of course, doesn't exist. Everyone thinks they can do everything, you know. Well, exactly. The class system here has long been um, something that sort of um, uh, inhibits some people from getting from one stage of their life to the, to the next because they believe that they can't do that sort of thing. But, you know, with, with lottery money and, you know, there's far more young millionaires in this country now than there ever has been. But I don't know what a millionaire really is. Hmm. Uh you became sort of, a, I would assume, a local celebrity. Still, the tough crowd around. Uh, was that fun? Was that hard? In the, the early, early days. Um, no, not for me. I quite enjoyed it, and um, it never really um, made an impression on me. But I believe that Glenor had various problems with it. Mm. Uh, so you make your second record, 1978, Cool for Cats. Uh, I think the title song and the song Up the Junction, both number two hits in the UK. Yeah. And now you really, the band sort of goes into overdrive, lots and lots and lots of touring. And you've signed with Miles Copeland uh, as your manager, who also takes 50% of your publishing, which is a sort of a, a large amount to take. Mm. Uh, and, and this, uh, you went to America, and I, I suppose it obviously had a profound effect on you. And like you said, you've done, I think, 30-plus tours of America since then. Uh, your rec- the records, especially the early records, they're so English. They're just completely full of references to, I guess, what you were seeing and, and writing down. Uh, mm. Did America just blow your mind? Yeah, very much so. It's such a huge continent to tour. Um, and the audiences were so up for us. Um, and they still are. You know, we just finished the six-week uh, American tour, and um, the audiences are just as gung-ho as they ever were. Yeah, especially here in New York, I think uh, you guys were on the radio constantly, I mean, all and still are. It's, it's an amazing town for Squeeze. Uh, to, to yeah, we played Radio City there a couple of months back, and uh, you know, we crammed sort of six, 7,000 people in there, and uh, it was a fantastic event. Yeah, I've seen you at Madison Square Garden here, which is, you know, an amazing achievement, really. Absolutely, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about how it works. Uh, you, I think, do you just write the lyrics on a piece of paper and hand them to Glenn, and then he goes off and does the rest? Yeah, yeah that's pretty much it. I mean, that's it's like the Bernie Taupin Elton John relationship. Hmm. So it's very simple, but uh, it works. And when you're writing a song, are you humming to yourself? Are you thinking of sort of a meter, or, or are you thinking of a feel, or are you just not, you know, just writing? There's always a meter, and there's always a kind of timeline, but it's, uh, um, I never re- reveal it to who I'm working with. Hmm. So when 
Yeah, so, so you never like jot a note. I think this is a slow song, or this is an upbeat song, no. or anything. Just no, no. And not. I should do that. <laughs> or I've ripped this one off from you know mm. such and yeah. such. Stop doing or something. Right. Uh, and and what percent of the time does Glenn come with something and you say that is completely not acceptable? No, I don't think I've ever said that. Um, I've I've uh, grunted and groaned a few times, but I've never been that honest. <laughs> One of the things that seems like you've been able to do listening to some of the reissues and seeing that there's uh, some of the bonus tracks are s- sort of slightly different versions. And you mm. sort of, it seems like the band uh, helped put songs together or arrange songs, or you weren't afraid to try something different ways. Yeah, we were quite experimental, and uh, Glenn was the leader in that respect. He was very good at. Um, leading us in different directions and because we were five individuals you know sort of pointing out in different directions we kind of uh, we kind of um, dragged the music around the rehearsal rehearsal room quite a bit before it settled into its shape or form Hmm. Uh, around this time so you meet a woman Cindy becomes your first wife and you move to New York to be with her and that really colors the lyrics that you're writing for the next album which uh, R.G. Bargy turns out to be R.G. Bargy I think recorded at the end of 79 released in 1980 and uh, this, this, this record makes another sort of giant leap forward in terms of just the whole package of what Squeeze is I think um, yeah it was actually a, an album that we made very quickly be- between tours so there wasn't an awful lot of thought put into it to be honest hmm. uh, it, was, it was we just raced in and did it uh, and and bat right back on tour again, which it seems like at this point the touring was sort of really having a a negative effect on you. I think it was on all of us really. We were just really tired. It was it was you know a lot of hard work. We would go around America, get to the end of the tour, and then our manager would say, "Right, we've got another six weeks," and then we go around again. So you'd think you'd be going home, and they'd say, "Let's just do a few more weeks." Yeah, it was like uh, boot boot camp. <laughs> uh, I mean, but I, I, judging from your lyrics, it sounds like it was simultaneously exciting and sort of tearing you apart. Yeah, I think so. But um, you know, I'm glad that it glad that it did. It did. It kind of uh, was uh, created uh, an, excite- an excitement and an, and an experience that I wouldn't have normally have had. Yeah. I think one of the things that makes R.G. Bargy so different is the lyrics. You know, there were plenty of different bands at that point, you know, like The Cars or Cheap mm-hmm. Trick, who were so different from Journey and those bands who had sort of not been moving forward with music. But the lyrics of Squeeze somehow, without being pretentious, were intelligent, you know, and I think that's right. that, that's what makes it different. Did Glenn appreciate what you were doing? Yeah, I mean, he's always been one of my biggest fans, you know, and uh, I always get really good feedback from uh, Glenn. So, yeah, we have a good relationship as far as that's concerned. There's a couple things in the book that are very interesting. A few quotes. One of them, uh, Glenn says, in a band you can only be as happy as the least happy person. And and another is, I think you say, for a while you and Glenn only communicated through lyrics. That was the only way you could sort of send him a message. Yeah, that's both very, very true quotes, I think. Um, you know, being in a band is like being in a family, and I think it's always very odd 
you know the, the, the kind of communication that you that you have it takes a while to sort of get through all of that but that's all way in the past now and uh, you know wherever we go out on tour now it's much much uh, smoother well you also were 23 20 I mean you were so young at that point you know that that bears thinking about you know yeah well I don't remember it really so <laughs> yeah. uh Jules leaves the band um Miles, you fire Miles, your uh, manager. You get Jake Riviera, who had started uh, Stiff Records and was a quite a charismatic guy and uh, managed Elvis Costello, etc. Paul Carrick joins the band, and you decide after a, a, a grander idea, you decide that Elvis Costello will produce uh, East Side Story, the next record, which is another you know fantastic record. And you sort of say in the book that this was sort of the pinnacle of Squeeze, right there. Yes, I think it probably was the coming together of working with Elvis Costello was a pretty major step for us. Um, and it was very craftily put together by our then manager, Jake. And uh, I think it was a very rewarding time, um, both musically and lyrically. I think we've definitely, uh, we definitely inspired each other. And another record made very quickly, right? Yeah, we made it in 12 weeks, which, um, you know, six weeks recording and then a bit of messing around and then we were done. Hmm. It worked worked really, really well. Um, And uh, it was lovely to work with him. And these kind of songs, were they, had they been played live and sort of worked out the kinks live or were they, were the arrangements worked up in the studio? Um, We had rehearsed them a little bit, I think. I can't remember, but I think we rehearsed them. And then um, we went in and played them. And some of them were actually written on the, on the spot. Um, so, you know, it was, a, it was a really exciting time. Yeah. Uh, Labeled with Love was a number four hit in the UK, which is sort of astonishing just because in America, there were, you know, a song like that at that time would never have made the top. Of the top charts, uh, but again, those songs were all over the radio. A song like "Tempted" from that album, I would assume that is your most played on the radio song. Yeah, it was a country song too. So it was whenever we came to America, we never we never played it. Um, but um, it's a song we don't play very often. But it's a song that everybody really really likes. Yeah, labeled with love is a fantastic song. Yeah, I know it's a story. It and people like like that. It's a shame that um, it's a shame that we don't do it more often. And I'm sure, I don't think we've ever done it in America. So huh. maybe it's something we can do in the future. Uh- I often think that the only reason the song Tempted wasn't a hit at the time in the USA was the record company just didn't think this should be a hit. Well, the record company was going through plenty of changes around that time, so they didn't know what was coming and what was going. You know, they were trying to follow trends to make money. And, uh, you know, a country song in a pop uh, on a pop station was not what people want, want, wanted, so it never got released, mm. really. So Paul Carrick sang, uh, sang one song on the record, Tempted, and yeah. did you know that when you heard that sort of coming out of the speakers, did you say this is a song that's going to sort of reach a lot of people? No, I knew it was good, but I didn't know it was as good as it was, and I certainly never envisaged that it would be in TV commercials. <laughs> um, you know, so happy days, really. 
I was listening to it today, and it's a song that sort of feels very familiar, yet not a pastiche. It's sort of hard to put your finger on exactly what it is, which I think is why it's so so moving, you know? Well, I think it's timeless. The production of it is fairly time timeless. Mm. It doesn't sound like it was recorded uh, in any particular era, which I think is testament to the amount of work that was done on the album. Yeah. Uh, so more touring, more lineup changes, uh, lots and lots of drinking and uh, mentally unraveling, really, for you. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> sounds fa- yeah, it sounds fantastic. Uh, uh, you make sweets from a stranger, and at that point, it sort of seems like the record company in America was trying to to get something going and really hyping you. And uh, just as the band was sort of winding down, you just uh, I believe Gilson Lavis, the drummer, was just so crazy. He you sort of, he had a full time security guard to watch him. Uh, and then you end up making the song uh, "Annie Get Your Gun," which was a big hit and. Alan Tarney had produced a bunch of hits. He produced the whole thing, and the story goes, you gave him a demo, and then you came back a few days later, and he had recorded the whole track, and you just had to sing on it. So is that true, and what percent of what we hear on the record did he do without you guys around? He pretty much did it all. Um, It was like digging the monkeys for a couple of minutes. The Archies, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we just turned up and sang on it. It was was a very strange event, but it sounded great, so I can't complain. Um, But when you're in a band, you kind of feel like you want to play all the instruments. Sure, yeah. Uh, So at that moment, the band breaks up, basically, right after that, and uh, you and and Glenn make the Different in Tilbrook LP. It's not quite clear why the band had to break up. It almost seems like you, you couldn't kick Gilson out of the band, so you had to just break up. Is that at all accurate? No, we were just tired. You know, it was time to take a rest. And uh, we didn't really think it through in that respect. We just said, okay, let's just split. And so we did. Uh, It was a knee-jerk reaction to being very, very tired. But um, I think it was a very good good move. Hmm. But you immediately came back and made the... uh made the, the different in Tilbrook record, so it's you didn't sort of take a break, uh, you know? Well, we did. We took um, at least a year off, and uh, if not more, and then we uh, recorded that album with Tony Visconti, um, that out, and, and then it was after that record that we decided to get back together again, and then we went to Belgium to record the Reunion Squeeze album, which was Cozy Fantuti. And um, out of all the records that we've recorded, that was the most, I think, dated sounding because it sounds like it was made in that particular time. 1985, yeah. 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 So it um, it was a transitional period for us, and um, Jules was back in the band. We had a different bass player. It It was all moving around again. Yeah, you made, uh, after that, uh, Babylon and On, which had a big hit, Hourglass, in the UK was a huge hit. I think partly based on the clever video. Yeah, we won an MTV award for that, and, um, you know, MTV had just taken off, and that kind of helped us, really, really in America. Um, you know, there's so little music television now that you can be associated with, so we were really lucky to be in amongst the birth of, of um, a station like, like that. Yeah. 
So after the reunion, uh, you made then Frank play some fantastic place, Ridiculous, and Domino, which is 1998. And then basically the same thing happens again, just the touring, the the pressure, the mm. the relationship with, with Glenn. It just gets bad. And, uh, and yeah, it all melts, melts down again. And in life, things are, you know, go in circ- circles. It's kind of like the four seasons of Squeeze, you know, they're like... Um, you know, we go through certain changes, and the, and then the leaves fall in the autumn, and it gets really cold, and then we get back together again in the spring and the summer. It's very, it, it, it happens. I think it happens to a lot of bands. I don't think we're just the only people that that happens to. Yeah. Uh, 13 albums. At that point, you broke up. And I believe that's when the, what that's at the point the sort of the book is written, and you say, I don't think we'll ever... Uh, get back together again and you sort of started a whole nother life managing bands and writing with other folks and yeah, uh, yeah. it's kind of it took you a long time to and, and you also I think found your sobriety at that time yeah I found my sobriety which is one of the biggest gifts that I've ever had and and then I went off and, and wrote a couple of solo, solo albums with some friends and then Squeeze, get back, squeeze gets back together again so you know, we're we're back on the circle again, yeah. and uh, it's kind of like um, that fantastic and Mitchell song. You know, the uh, circle uh, playing the circle game. Um, you know, the uh, painted ponies go round and and round. It's exactly like Squeeze. Yeah, you made. Uh, I didn't get where I am in two thousand three, and last tape, Temptation of Chris, uh, last this year, right? And yeah. And there's also Southeast Side Story, which is a DVD and comes with a CD of you playing some uh, squeeze songs. And it's yeah. diff- interesting yeah. to hear your interpretation, you know, you singing lead on, on some songs that, that Glenn's known for. Yeah, well, I, I had to do them very differently, so I did them with Pastor Steel. And, um, you know, I just didn't want to do them like squeeze songs because there was no point, really. Squeeze do them the best. So, <laughs> you know, when I go out on tour now, I do very different versions of, of yeah, it's very interesting. So, how did the reunion happen? Was it just time? Did you just miss each other? Mm, I don't think it's miss each other. I mean, we've always loved each other as friends and even distantly. Um, but it just became apparent that um, you know it, it was time. Really, it was time to get back on the road. And you know, Glenn had a band already at that point, so we stole his drummer and his keyboard player. We got John Bentley back in, our, one of our original bass players, and we hit the road last last year, and um, we've enjoyed every minute of it so so far. Yeah, so, I, it seems like you guys are having fun up there, which I think is a, a key element to it all. Well, is there one of the things that many people asked me to ask you? People are very interested in is will other folks who have been in the Squeeze family sort of come in and out of this new version of Squeeze? Really interesting you say that because I've just had an email from one of our old bass players who I haven't spoken to for ages. And although I'm not saying that we're going to change bass players because we, we, we don't have to, but um, it's, it's really nice to be in contact with all the people that have been in Squeeze. And, you know, it would be lovely to do a gig with Jules Holland one day, maybe, or with Paul, Paul uh, Carrick. Mm. But, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, uh, you've got some. I think the next time Squeeze is playing will be summer of two thousand nine. And the word is you're working on a new album. What is what stage is that in? It's 
in the Let's Work On A New Album stage <laughs> where we are just talking about it. <laughs> um, Glenn's off supporting, he's on tour uh, with his new album, which he's just finished. So that will take him through to the end of the summer, I would imagine, and then we'll start writing next September. And is it is it going to be hard for you to sort of look down at your notebook and think, is this for Squeeze or is this for my next Chris Difford album? Well, we'll have to wait and see. That's a very good question. I don't know. <laughs> uh, there's also a new live uh, at the BBC record, all the Squeeze sessions of the BBC. And there's also two records of uh, Glenn's demos of the Squeeze song. So there's lots and lots of material out there for folks and, mm-hmm. and your solo album. I had uh, Ron Sexsmith on the show a few years ago, and he was saying that he had been staying at your house, and you guys woke up one morning, and you said to him, "Would you like to go over to Paul McCartney's house and have breakfast?" And so you, <laughs> and so you just walked down the lane and went over to Paul McCartney's house. Uh, how close are you to Paul McCartney? Uh, just a couple of fields away. <laughs> and and you guys drop by and and you know borrow a, a, a cup of sugar. Um, occasionally, he doesn't have sugar, but yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, those were the days, you know, it was lovely to hang out with Ron in those days. He's such a lovely guy. Yeah. He writes such incredible songs. Yeah. Tell me about being a father. How many kids do you have and how, I mean, all your, your the rock and roll lifestyle, how, did, how has that affected your kids? Pretty well, actually. Yeah, um, yeah, really, really, really well. Everybody gets on famously, so it's absolutely great. You know, there's no, there's no diverse things going on there. That's nice. Uh, you do these songwriting workshops that you hold. What 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 goes on there? Um, the last one I did was a couple of weeks, uh, a couple of months ago, and eighteen writers got together and we wrote 30, thirty-five songs in a week. And it's basically just getting people together to write songs. Yeah. And are these well-known folks or are unknown? Yeah. Both, both I- novices and people that you would know. Yeah. And you're also, you also teach songwriting at a school? I do, yeah, and um, that's, that's really amazing. It's great. I was, talk- I was talking to the students last week about the Beatles, and most of them couldn't be bothered. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, yeah. there's, there's some work to do, I think, then. I yeah. think there's a lot of work to do, then, yeah. You also post these great tour journals on the web, which I uh, obviously technology hasn't scared you at all. I, I, I urge folks to, to check those out. Tell me why you're selling guitars. On your website, you post uh, some photos of guitars that you're selling. I've just got too many of them. I don't, you know, you only need three or four. You can only play one at, one at, one at a time. Right, you've got two hands. Okay. So I, just thought, I just thought I'd share it with the world, you know. Why not? Uh, I would like to ask you about record company accounting honesty. What percent of all money do you, do you think you've been paid? Mm, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to, but probably about two thirds. Oh, that's not bad. <laughs> mm. You've got some shows coming up in uh, late November and December with Jules Holland. Is it you solo opening? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, that should be fun. Uh, what do you think Squeeze will be remembered by? I mean, obviously, there's now a little bit of time passed, and you know, you've got people that don't even remember the Beatles. Uh, you know, what is Squeeze's place in the history of music? That's really not for me to say. I think it's for other people to to um, to um, add to that. But um, I hope it's been uh, a career that's, 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 that, that flags up what good songs are and uh, what fun you can have being playing live. 
Are you surprised by how that's evolved, how the the story of Squeeze, the reputation of Squeeze has evolved? Mm, um, because you're, I'm in the middle of it, I don't really see it like that. So I just enjoy the inner circle of, of what happens. Yeah. Well, Christopher, this has been a, an illuminating and fascinating uh, interview. Yeah. I, you know, obviously, Squeeze just made some fantastic, amazing records and still continues to. That's very kind. Thank I, you. I hope I've got "Cool for Cats" uh, queued up here, uh, mm-hmm. a true number one hit song. Uh, can you remember? Tell us anything about the writing or the recording or the the releasing of it? Um, yeah, it was a song where we had the backing track for the lyric, and. Um, it was inspired by uh, a character called Benny Hill. Oh, the little guy who ran around? <laughs> yes. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. <laughs> uh, was it you? So what, you mean you were watching Benny Hill and you just wrote the lyric? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Cool. And was there ever a time when Glenn was the lead singer of this song? Not that I know of. so immediately this was one for you well Chris Difford thank you so much and when you're uh, in New York I hope you'll come by and bring your guitar will do thank you so much thank you thank you the Indians send signals from the rocks above the pass the cowboys take position in the bushes and the grass the score is with the corporal she is tied against the tree she doesn't mind the language it's the beating she don't around and says it's cool for cats, it's cool for cats. The Sweeney's doing nightly cause they've got nowhere to go. They get a gang of villains in a shed up at Heathrow. They're counting out the fibers when the handcuffs lock again. In and out I once were with the numbers on their names. It's funny how the missus always looks a bleeding same. And meanwhile at the station there's a couple of likely lads who swear like as your father and they're very cool for cats, they're cool for cats. The mood a little I've been posing down the pub I'm seeing my reflection I'm looking slightly rough I fancy this I fancy that I want to be so flash I'll give a little muscle And I'll spend a little cash But all I get is bitter And a nasty little rash And by the time I'm sober I've forgotten what I've had And everybody tells me That it's cool to be a cat Cool for cats Onto the wall. I kiss her for the first time and then I take her home. 
I'm invited in for coffee and I'll give the dog a bone She likes to go to discos but she's never on her own I said I'll see you later and I'll give her some old chat But it's not like they're on the TV when it's cool for cats, it's cool for cats 